Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Logistics Podcast. I'm your host, Kirsty Adams, editor of SHD Logistics. This episode, you are in for a real treat. I catch up with Air Vice Marshal Richard Hill to talk about defence logistics. Here's a peek at what's to come. The last mile in a tactical operational environment is the most dangerous mile in which most likely enemy action is going to cause problems for people involved in activity in that final mile. So if we're able to automate, use autonomous vehicles, for example, to use, I've seen robotic mules, drones, all those sorts of technologies being spoken of, then that will be something that will be of great interest. This episode is sponsored by Lidos UK. If you don't know Lidos UK, they're a science and technology operator, best known for their £6.7 billion logistics contract with the Ministry of Defence. I've been getting to know Lidos very well recently because we've been writing a series of articles with them, one of which you're about to hear. Now, this isn't a Netflix thriller series, so you can listen to the following interview without having read or heard the others, but I do recommend you read them at some point because they are very interesting. The first interview in the series was with Vice President and Managing Director of Lijos UK's Logistics Division, Damien Alexander. You can read that on shdlogistics.com or in our June issue, which is also available on shdlogistics.com. The second interview was with Richard Wilding. Richard is Professor of Supply Chain Strategy at Cranfield School of Management. He's also Non-Executive Director for Lidos UK's Logistics Division. You can read this online or in our July-August issue, but I can tell that you like podcasts, so why don't you listen to the podcast interview? It's called Building Resilient Supply Chains. It's two podcasts ago. Here is Air Vice Marshal Richard Hill. I thought we'd start by looking at his career, which took him all over the world. I am a Royal Air Force officer. I have been serving in the Royal Air Force for coming up to 36 years now. I did join actually to be a fast jet pilot and fight the Cold War, flying one of the uh, the Lightnings, not the one that we've just introduced, the F-35, but the old English Electric Lightning, which dates back to about the time I was born. But I discovered I wasn't very good at being a member of the aircrew fraternity, so I joined what was then the supply branch, I suppose 33 years ago now. And I've had a really broad background in the time since then. Not all in the supply branch, because as a Royal Air Force officer, I've also been employed as a generalist, being a career manager in our human resources sort of area. And doing quite a lot of budgeting. I spent about four years immediately prior to this job running the budget for the Royal Air Force and programming its expenditure. But my real professional anchor has been in airport operations. So cargo handling, passenger handling, loading aircraft, turning them round. I think dispatching would be the closest phrase in civilian industry. And that really has taken me all over the world from uh, the South Atlantic, the Falkland Islands, 
through Afghanistan and Iraq, quite a lot of time in the United States and Canada, and an awful lot of time in and around continental Europe, handling UK military aircraft operating through airfields, largely in uh, Germany and Belgium, to be honest, but also elsewhere. All of that culminated by my running the airport of embarkation wing, so the airport at RAF Bryce Norton as a wing commander. And beyond that, I was the station commander at Royal Air Force Wittering, which is now the home of the Royal Air Force's logistics and deployable engineering forces. Uh, I did that for a really enjoyable couple of years, about 10 years ago now. Uh, And then all the fun stopped, and I've largely been office-bound in that last 10 years. But again, a different range of challenges and a really exciting bunch of uh, opportunities. Absolutely fascinating career. I'm sure you'll agree with that. In this next clip, Richard talks a bit about managing the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's impacting the MOD's digital objectives. Being part of a defence organisation, we have a series of ongoing operations and other business-as-usual activities that we've needed to keep going alongside the pandemic response. And in my particular area, as well as that business-as-usual activity, we're embarked on a 10-year transformation programme, trying to transform the way in which we do logistics and support across defence. And so I've been trying my best to keep that going during an environment of people working from home and also dealing with that very urgent and very important pandemic response. I think there is a view more generally across the industry that COVID-19, as well as being a tragic set of circumstances for the nation and indeed the world, it has been something of an accelerator of innovation and change, specifically in connection with digital transformation. Lots of people are talking about it being the real push for that. Our challenge has been that we should not be moved off our course, which we have planned out in a programme of activity, as I say, running out over 10 years or so, and not, to use the colloquial phrase, be steered or encouraged to have a knee-jerk reaction to the specific circumstances related to covid But what it has done is absolutely reinforce that logistics and support more broadly is a key enabler of activity. The response to COVID in the UK has undoubtedly been in large part a question of logistics. And more broadly in defence, which is clearly my business, defence has reconfirmed and unaffirmed the fact that support is a key enabler, not just a bit of administrative drag, if you will. So I think the focus on support into the future is much more clear and is sharply helpful. So we're going to capitalise on that. And the idea is that we will now hopefully be able to gain the sponsorship, support and financial backing for all the work that we need to do based on that understanding that we are key enablers and not just back office administrative overhead, if you will. As Richard says, COVID-19 is catalyzing digital transformation for UK defence. And defence is not alone. Of course, we know that. I recently read a survey by a company called Twilio, which is a cloud communications platform, which surveyed over 2,500 decision makers in the US, the UK, Germany, Australia, France, Spain, Italy, Japan and Singapore. 
Its purpose was to gauge their views on digital engagement as a result of COVID-19. The survey found that COVID-19 has accelerated the company's digital communication strategy by an average of six years, while 97% of enterprise decision makers believe the pandemic sped up the company's digital transformation. 79% of respondents said that COVID-19 increased the budget for digital transformation. This certainly sort of is relatable for us at SHD and it probably is relatable for you too. We're about to rejoin the interview with Richard at the point where I've just asked him about how tech innovation in defence compares to other sectors. Not being in the industry other than in the defence bit of it, I'm not massively well qualified to comment. But from what I've seen, which is really limited on two or three companies with which I have a relationship, they seem to be embracing new technology far more quickly than we in defence and the public sector are. And I think that's probably not surprising. The key feature of your question, Kirsty, was quickly enough. Well, I suppose some people would argue we can never be quick enough because we are always wanting to test and make sure that we're not introducing problems as well as potential solutions. But from what I see, there does seem to be a reasonable pace of introduction elsewhere, much less so in defence, as I've said, but we are trying to catch up as quickly as we can. And our approach is to learn from the experience of others. What we're seeing is in order for us to catch up, we in some areas, such as our information services, are leaping literally decades forward, 30 or 40 years in some spaces. So we don't need to be right at the bleeding edge of innovation, if you will, even if we are a little while behind. We are not too far behind the pack because, of course, the pace of change is so quick at the moment that the leading edge is moving very quickly and to be just behind it is not too far behind. But even by being behind it, we are improving our access to technology and other types of innovation by, as I say, 30 or 40 years. So from our perspective, it is absolutely a huge leap forward. And if we manage to do it in that uh, four or five or six year period of, of BMFS, then that will feel quite quick to us, I have to say. Artificial intelligence is transforming logistics operations. In this next part of our discussion, Richard talks about his approach to artificial intelligence and the importance of blockchain. As others will know across the industry, a real area to be tapped into, and I think we in defence are slightly late coming to this particular party, but keen to catch up. And I think we're quite well placed to do it because we do recognise that the centrality or the central feature of our business is really data. And we used to be, perhaps 20 or 30 years ago, absolute masters at collecting on bits of paper lots of data around the availability and the repair and overhaul requirements of our large capital equipment assets. And then we would employ lots of human beings with a great deal of experience. So middle managers, people who've been around quite a long time, often from the factory floor, if you will, having worked their way up in the business, to analyze that information and those data and to use that to then predict what meantime between failures would look like, what likely modes of failure would be, what repair work would need to be undertaken, 
and then take a view on that meant in terms of tools, spares availability, servicing profiles, intervals between inspections, all that sort of technical equipment support activity. But we've lost that in many ways over the last 20 or 25 years as we have outsourced quite a lot of that maintenance and servicing activity to contractors and we've lost the ability to be an intelligent customer. Now self-evidently given the way we are with workforce at the moment and the desire not to spend too much money or certainly no more money than necessary on value adding human beings in our workforce then what we need to do is replace that intelligence, those uh, armies of middle managers assessing and analysing data, and replace them with software, because I never want to buy another computer again. I'm very much about buying services and software, not about buying hardware. But anyway, to have the computing power available to do that intellectual exercise of crunching the data at machine speed ahead of time, with the ability to model in a digital twinning type environment so that we can forecast and take action to prevent issues occurring. All of that space is where artificial intelligence can absolutely be brought to bear. And we will be uh, taking forward a significant amount of pilot activity during the BMFS, the Business Modernization for Support program that I spoke about a few moments ago. What my experts tell me is that we don't use blockchain yet to any great extent, but we do recognize that there is real merit and value in starting to do so. In supply chain, I am not aware of what we might think about using it for at this stage, but where we absolutely see merit is in our engineering record systems. So the security that's brought by blockchain and the resistance to change of records uh, and the ability to have a real clear audit trail, we see that being hugely useful for systems of record around engineering activity, certification, particularly where there's a, a safety aspect. So airworthiness for the aircraft, seaworthiness for ships, etc. And similar in, uh, in the army, in the land environment. But it will be as far as we can see, largely in that space that we will be using blockchain technologies. And again, we've got some experimentation underway at the moment to see what those opportunities might turn into. In defence, last mile delivery can be a matter of life or death. In this next part of my discussion with Richard, he talks about the role of robotics and automation in that final stretch, as well as the benefits of 3D printing. I think you'll be aware of all the ones that I am aware of. Artificial intelligence, we've spoken about machine learning, so the ability for machines to evolve their process and their activity by learning from what they do. We're seeking to harness that. Robotics, in two senses, the idea of bots operating in the services and in the back office, cleaning up the data, going finding gaps in policy, providing suggestions where we might need new processes and guides then uh, we're we're very much looking to harness that. But also robots in the more traditional sense. We are very interested in last mile delivery, as lots of people are, but our interest in defence is even more profound because it's quite often, not to put too fine a point on it, the last mile in a tactical operational environment is the most dangerous mile in which most likely enemy action is going to cause problems for 
people involved in activity in that final mile. So if we're able to automate, use autonomous vehicles, for example, to use, I've seen robotic mules, drones, all those sorts of technologies being spoken of, then that will be something that will be of uh, a great interest to us. And there is experimentation ongoing in all those areas. The other one is additive manufacture 3D printing. We've sort of discovered now the problem that it needs to fix because I have certainly felt for a long time that it's been a solution looking for a problem to fix. The idea that we might in every tank, in every ship, in every aeroplane have a 3D printer to print a part that's needed when a fault occurs just seems to me to be fanciful at this stage. But in an environment where, for example, we're building a hospital in a deployed location, it may be that the plumber prints all of his or her plastic pipes, plastic tea pieces, plastic taps, all those sorts of things, rather than having to have a large supply chain behind the tradespeople. And similarly, where we are not able to or don't want to, for obvious reasons, hold a massive stockpile of a particular series of spares against a peak operational requirement, it may well be feasible to simply have the right cartridges to put in the 3D printer all the drawings available for the parts that we need and then at the point where we think we're going to have an increased operational demand we put it all together and we just start printing whatever those parts or spares are not necessarily very far forward into the battle space but at a point where it's sensible is a well-found location relatively and from where we can then uh, move them forward so i do think that there is quite a lot still for us to exploit in that additive manufacture space Hello listeners, Kirsty here. I just wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to let you know we are no longer holding the SHG Logistics Conference at the British Museum on September 30th, 2020, due to COVID-19 restrictions. Bad news, I know, but the good news is we'll be holding a digital conference with the same lineup of excellent speakers on October 15th, 2020. To find out more, please visit logisticsconference.co.uk. Now, back to the podcast. Richard and his team are embarking on a 10-year change programme to transform the way they deliver logistics and support across defence. In our next clip, he discusses what's set to be an interesting time. Interesting programme underway over the next 10 years. Really, it has three parts within it, first of which is a new defence support operating model. And I know that in other areas of logistic business, it would be an odd thing to talk about having to reset an operating model, I sense, because these things are largely well-established and laid down. What we have discovered, having been working on this for four or five years now, is that Defence had allowed its logistics and support arrangements to really become fragmented, to have no board-level focus for any of the activity, and really to refocus entirely on supporting 
the operations that have been underway in Afghanistan and Iraq for the last 10 or 15 years. And that is not the world in which we now find ourselves. And so we need to rearrange our support operating model such that we are correctly configured to deal with the new challenges, which really are the challenges that we knew before Iraq and Afghanistan. Beyond that, the other big piece is a program called Business Modernization for Support, which is all about making sure that we have a set of standard processes in the logistics area, standard processes that are used across the whole of the department. So in the Navy, the Army and the Royal Air Force and in our supporting organisations, rather than the literally hundreds of separate overlapping bespoke processes, which are all really variations on a standard set of about 12 or 15, we think. And once we've got those new processes embedded, the organisation using them as part of their sort of second nature, then and only then will we start to introduce new digital tools, lots of apps, quite a lot of cloud-based technology, just to make sure that we have the new information services to support those new business procedures. So that's the first two areas of the portfolio. And then elsewhere, we've got a whole bunch of what we call discovery projects at the moment, which are really looking at discrete parts of the organization and bringing them up to date, new ways of thinking, often with commercial partners. Some of those that I would talk about at this stage, we have a, a project running in the fuel enterprise area. We're large consumers of fuel in defense. The way in which we do it is somewhat traditional. Uh, that tradition dates back over literally hundreds of years in the case of the Navy and the Army. And some of the infrastructure in which we keep our fuel and distribute it is literally 100 or more years old with the sort of challenges that you could uh, expect from that. And the organization that we manage our fuel with and through which we buy it is perhaps not at the cutting edge of thinking in the way that that's done elsewhere. So we're seeking to do something about that. In other areas, it's really about provisioning and procurement, getting better at understanding stock levels that we need to hold, how stock levels turn into availability, and the ability to work out the availability required in order to service the demand signal that is placed upon us. And of course, in defense, that can be a demand signal which varies on a day-to-day, week-to-week, and year-to-year basis. So that is an area of considerable effort in which we hope to see some real benefit. Finally, I asked Richard what the next 10 years looks like. So I said we've got a 10-year change programme going on, transformation programme. I'm probably going to do about five years of that 10 years, and that will probably see me out of my career in the military. And at the end of a career, being given the opportunity to spend five years making a difference transforming the world in which I've operated for the last 35 years or so and have an opportunity to uh, make better and fix the challenges that I've seen develop over that period. I hope, and certainly it's been the case in the nine or so months I've been doing it so far, I really hope that that will be a good way to finish and will be a professionally rewarding way to cap off a thoroughly enjoyable career. It was absolutely fascinating to talk to Air Vice Marshal Richard Hill 
and hear how UK defence logistics technology is really leaping forward. Our conversation also offered some perspective on what a critical last mile really is and I'm really, really pleased that you shared that with us. Thank you to Richard and the Lidos UK team. Before you go, I just wanted to tell you who some of our speakers will be for our digital conference on the 15th of October 2020. I'm delighted to confirm that our, some of our speakers will include Gordon Knox, Business Transformation and Logistics Director for Superdry, Santiago Navarro, the CEO of Garcon Wines, and Sandra Rowling, Head of the EV100 Initiative around electric vehicles from the Climate Group. To find out how to book your place, please visit www.logisticsconference.co.uk. That is all from me for now and see you next time.